In South Africa, broken generating units, low diesel supplies and insufficient pump storage reserves drove an already struggling ESCOM into stage six load shedding in September. I reached out to Sisela Kulu, who is the Chief Engineering Officer at PWD Experts, as well as being the former Managing Director at City Power Johannesburg and a previous President of the AMU for his solo commentary on the current energy predicament and South Africa's President Ramaphosa's plan to address the challenges. Welcome to the ESI Africa podcast, brought to you by your trusted power and energy multimedia journal. You can download this and all other episodes on esi-africa.com forward slash podcasts. Let's get into today's conversation. Okay, so Cecilia, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. We're talking about uh, the president's energy plan. But let's start off with a little bit of background in terms of how this came about. Colette, I think firstly, let me thank you for the opportunity to invite me to come and have a chat with you. I think, uh, you know, it's much appreciated, especially to air our views as well, I think from the industry professionals. You are most welcome. Um, no, thanks. So maybe just to give a bit of context, uh, at least on my side, I'll just briefly you know, spend half a minute uh, just recapping on the energy president's plan or, mm-hmm. or the president energy plan, as they call it, um, so that there's context that at least in what uh, we're going to be discussing. So firstly, uh, I think the president uh, pointed out that at that particular time, there was a shortage of about 6,000 megawatts, which is the gap that we needed to plug in so that we can be able to avert the load shedding that we faced in, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago. But I think we also know that although we needed 6,000 megawatts, there was about 18,000 megawatts that was locked up, you know, in uh, breakdowns. It means there's a potentially about 18,000 megawatts if we're to resolve the breakdowns uh, that we can be able to actually come up with to try and resolve the, you know, the load chain. And this 18,000 megawatts is basically a dispatchable, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, energy uh, because it's from, you know, from the base load. So I think that that came across, you know, the president's energy plan. And the second point I think that he mentioned was obviously, uh, I think some of the inroads that have been made uh, around uh, making sure that you bring in the renewables, either from the wind or solar. I think as part of Pete Window 4, there was 2,000 megawatts that have been synchronized already to the grid. And I think Pete Window 5, uh, they were expecting about 2,600 megawatts uh, that was going to be coming in online, I think around early 2024. So which was obviously, again, I think, good. Um, and I think the president clearly stated that there's a need to fix and improve the performance in terms of ESCOM, looking at the current existing fleet, uh, you know, from power station's point of view. And I think it's a good point because then it will go a long way in terms of making sure that we unlock some parts of that 18,000 megawatts uh, as a base load. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also it became clear that uh, there were some of the red tapes either from the SCM point of view to buy the maintenance space. And I think the president also, you know, pronounced on that, that they will be cutting the red tapes in that particular environment. Uh, also recruitment of the skilled personnel, uh, including I think bringing back some of the senior ESCOM plan managers and engineers, etc. And then lastly, I think he also, you know, came across powerfully around importing power from the, you know, the Southern African power pool. Uh, you know, arrangement. So 
So I think that's the gist really of the plan as I, as I see it, you know, just in summary. But again, you need to also give context in terms of what you're talking about. So my input and, and you know, I would like to focus on the three, I think, major areas uh, that I think uh, of importance. And, and I must say that my argument is that uh, if you look at, uh, you know, load shading, load shading, it's more of a symptom uh, to certain root causes. And I think the root causes obviously around firstly the notion that a renewable will address load shedding. And so that's the one point that I would like to deal with. Mm. The second one is the impact uh, in terms of the ESCOM debt, uh, which I think it's important that we reflect on this issue and see uh, how it contributes towards you know, load shedding. And then thirdly, which is somehow covered, I think, within the, you know, the president's energy plan is the shortage of skills or the skills gap. Uh, but also, I think the succession planning, you know, uh, especially, you know, from the board and executive level, that's how I would like to cover. So those are the three main areas that I would like to really focus on uh, as part of our talk. So I'll then start with, uh, you know, the renewable energy. Uh, uh, why is it seen as a solution or probably not as a solution uh, to, to the load shedding? I must qualify up front that uh, I think in terms of bringing new renewables, I think it's, it's very critical. It's important as part of the energy mix, but is it a solution to the load shedding? That's a point I would like to clarify. Mm. I think we know that, uh, you know, so other solar or wind uh, cannot operate on a 24 seven basis because it's not a base load. So it is totally dependent on the sunlight or the sunshine. And, and, and by the way, any form of cover, either be a cloud cover or it can be energy intensity or rain or dust, will drop the production and, you know, and, and based on the studies, uh, the production can drop from 80% to probably about less than 80%. So, so I think that's a point of departure. Uh, and again, think that in relation to trying to address the load shedding and from the base load point of view. So solar wind in South Africa also will only provide, I think on a good day, uh, we all know there's about 80 to 90% production of its installed capacity. And this is only for the maximum of four to six hours. So it means that the rest of the time, it will be below the 50% mark, uh, and in some cases, closer to 10%. So this is over a period of 12 hours, because that's where you've got basically the sunshine, sunshine, which is obviously from 7 a.m. to about 6 p.m. or so. So it means the capacity factor of over 12 hours is only 60%. So I'll give an example just you know, uh, you know, for us to be on the same page. So if you install the 100 megawatts, so we can basically expect about 60 megawatts coming out of that. Uh, and the, you know, on average, you know, in terms of the proper supply. But if you look at over 24 hour period, this will then reduce uh, to about 30 megawatts. So, so my argument then is that, uh, although you can actually put solar on the ground and actually push solar without any storage, it will not resolve the load shedding at the end of the day. It's good as part of the energy mix, but not as a solution to load shedding at the end of the day. So, but let me, you know, also say that where solar can actually be able to, to be used, uh, I think, uh, optimally. Uh, so if you look at the renewables, they, they will normally work very well in environments that can adapt to quick changes, I think, in the power supply, I guess we know that. So meaning that you should be able to, when there's no balance in terms of, supply and demand, you should be able to quickly respond to that, either drop the load and so forth and so forth. So therefore, I think that in the residual homes, if there's a sunlight, it's not good enough there in that particular area, so there can be a quick behavioral change 
uh, to compensate for that. So I think solar or should, you know, the distribution of solar or the, the rollout or the penetration should then be encouraged and probably incentivized in those particular areas. Because if you know that there's no sun, you can quickly within your home be able to then start shifting the load or change the behavior and stop you know, doing the washing and doing some other time and so forth and so forth. But if you look at some types of you know, industries like you know, you know, industries and, and businesses that can also be you know, used of renewables you know, very well, such as the tourism, your agriculture and so forth. So that's well and good. However, if you look at heavy industries of which they actually drive the economy of the country, so it will be very difficult for those to rely on natural solar. I'm talking about mining here, I'm talking about manufacturing you know, and so forth. So, so the application is very important uh, and therefore it has to be contextualized in that sense, not to be seen as just a solution to the load shedding uh, you know, blanketly because it will not resolve the load shedding at the end of the day. So, uh, so we need to be careful then of driving away industrial customers to either gas or renewables and away you know, from ESCO, like the point that we discussed earlier on, you know, when, you know, just before we started with this discussion. So otherwise ESCO will be stuck with customers that are very difficult. I'm, I'm talking to residential customers, rural customers, prepaid customers. And we know that in that environment, there's obviously a culture of non-payment. So once you've displaced, you know, these big industrial customers, because they can generate on their own, they merely just use ESCOM as a standby whenever, when there's no sunshine, and therefore they have to need ESCOM. So you're not actually trying to resolve the problem, uh, you know, the root cause. You're just resolving the symptom, which will obviously then come back at the end of the day and actually bite you. When ESCOM becomes a rural company, there's less investment. Obviously, then there's going to be an impact in terms of revenue and so forth. So rather, put a strategy to incentivize the residential base to move from renewables and maybe even go off the grid and, and that, I, thought, I think that's how this should be looked at. And I'm saying municipalities can also be compensated for this in other ways, uh, just to make sure that there's that encouragement. So as I conclude on my position really around solar as a solution or not a solution to the load shedding. So I'd like to leave you with this thought, uh, uh, for instance, if you look at Germany, I think we know about the Ukraine you know, issue. Germany currently has about 142 gigawatts renewables installed capacity. So, I mean, that's, we know that they've been leading in this environment. And then if you look at Germany's uh, non-renewable installed capacity is about 79 gigawatts. So now, what does this mean? So it means your Germany is the tennis maximum demand, I think in 2001 or so, 2021, sorry, yeah, 2021 was about 70 gigawatts. Therefore, it means Germany has about, I think over 200% reserve margin from your renewables. So it means they've got an excess of about 151 gigawatts. Yet, if you look at the threat that has come in with the Russia-Ukraine war in terms of shutting down the gas pipe in Germany. So the German government panicked uh, and then obviously to try and secure a base load power. So we have to ask ourselves why, if they've got 200% reserve margin of renewables, why can't they just relax and say the renewables will plug in that particular gap uh, uh, and then not have a problem. It's because we all know that gas and, and nuclear is a, is a base load supply. So that's what you need. So therefore my argument is that uh, if you look at renewables and renewables alone, uh, it will actually not be able to resolve the issue that we have. And because it's not predictable, we all we, we know that. It is also not dispatchable. Uh, 
So therefore, it can keep the entire system of demand and supply balance. So I think that's a point. So although the president is pronounced on this, I think we need to be cautious as to how this is obviously, I think, addressed and how it's applied at the end of the day so that it does not become a situation where you now have a base load uh, supply as a backup to renewables because of the days where obviously there's not going to be any uh, sunshine, you know, or probably wind blowing and so forth. Because then it becomes very costly at the end of the day to be doing that. You can actually now be able to back up uh, renewables at whatever 50 cents per kilowatt hour with obviously a base load coming from renewables, if you want to put it that way, at probably twice the price of that. So we need to just be careful around that. So I think that's my conclusion and submission around the renewables. And obviously, I don't think that there will be part of the solution to load shading, but they should be part of the mix in terms of the RP, I think, going forward, as it has been defined. Now, I'd like to move on to the second point, Nicolette, if you allow me to, which obviously looks at the ESCOM debt. And again, my argument is saying, although there was no pronouncement, I think that was deferred by the president to later on in October uh, to the Minister of Finance. I think it's very critical to confront the ESCOM debt uh, issue so that uh, we can then be able to unlock the funds and those funds can then go into other refurbishment or even the maintenance uh, when it comes to the current fleet where we've got 18,000 megawatts that is obviously locked in breakdowns. So I think that's where the context comes in when it comes to resolving the issue of the ESCOM debt, uh, in my view. And again, I think this is a true root cause of the load shedding. And load shedding is merely a symptom uh, to that. So therefore, maybe just for a context that we know that ESCOM built about two power stations, the Medupin and, and Kusile, and there were a lot of issues there. Overpriced, there was mismanagement that came about as we know it now, uh, over budget and, and obviously the quality issues and so forth. Um, and I think through the process, obviously, it created close to about 500 billion debt, uh, you know, that was created. Um, and, and obviously, we actually see now with the MYPD processes that have come forth, there's been massive tariff increases, I think close to about 400% increase uh, in terms of tariffs. So we're actually paying the price as we speak. So, so the, the way I look at it, that this debt has actually dropped ESCOM, as we all know, to junk status. And also the country has been downgraded as well to junk, uh, amongst others, because of the ESCOM risk. ESCOM is not a going concern without government backing, as it stands now. So this is our current situation. And again, I'm just giving a context to this uh, so that we understand how um, you know, the ESCOM debt contributes towards the blockchain. So the primary cause then for this was absolutely no coordination in my view or checks and balances between the borrowing and spend, I think around that. And then obviously now it's resulted to that 420 billion. So we've seen the cash flow constraints. We've seen the budget cuts. We've seen the maintenance deferment and less maintenance, probably in some cases, no maintenance at all. So, and again, if these are the issues and the president is saying, let's focus on the, uh, you know, the fleet that is there and be able to do maintenance, how can you then do, where are you gonna get the money from? Because if you look at both from the government point of view and you look at you know, ESCOM balance sheet, they obviously cannot be able to do anything uh, to be able to then release some of the funds unless there's another bailout of some sort that will then go towards that maintenance or refurbishment to unlock the 6,000 megawatt, at least as a start. 
So, so therefore, these issues around cash flow, budget cuts, you know, maintenance deferments, this leads to an unreliable plant and, and breakdowns. And, and obviously without the budget or the money, and therefore at the end of the day, you know, you're not gonna be able to resolve it. And therefore the breakdowns and unplanned outages uh, will obviously you know, continue and then will also lead to use of these generators as we know in terms of picking and so forth. I mean, what I've picked up is that uh, from literature is that they are using around 10 liters per second. So, I mean, that's actually a huge you know, amount of money that is being used just to compensate for this. And again, that puts even more strain and burden uh, in terms of the already constrained cash flow, I think requirements and budget and so forth. So therefore, uh, this obviously lead to certain losses and government has to then bail out. And then also it leads to the increase in tariffs as we've seen it happening. Uh, if you look at what is currently projected around 33%, you know, tariff increases. So it's really, really unbearable at the end of the day. So what I'm saying is that to address the load shedding, we have to resolve the root causes. And I think that this is part of the biggest root cause that needs to be addressed so that we're able to then uh, actually deal with the load shedding. So government is currently planning, as we know, I think I've, you know, from the media reports to take the debt away from ESCOM. And I think it's about what, 200 billion that they want to move it to the government balance sheet. But what does this mean really? I mean, will it actually make any impact? And my view is that it won't because it's just a zero sum game uh, where you're just moving you know, 200 billion away from ESCOM but into the government's balance sheet. But at the end of the day, the government is actually backing ESCOM for any borrowings that are there. And also, if government is borrowing, is borrowing at a much better rate as you compare to, to ESCOM. So does it mean then, you know, if, you know, ESCOM can now borrow more? And the answer is no. Uh, we know that. And as I've said, government borrows at a better rate than ESCOM. So you're basically reshuffling, you know, the deck of a sinking ship, the way I look at it. And if these media reports are actually true. Uh, and again, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter where it sits. It's still transferred back into the taxpayers at the end of the day where they need to obviously pay for this. So, so that's basically the high level analysis uh, around the debt and obviously uh, as a very important element and root cause that needs to be addressed. And then moving the debt around, it's obviously not a solution. It obviously it has obstacles in terms of value, but I don't think it's a, it's a solution. So as I then conclude again on the debt issue, which I think is one of the biggest you know, elephant in the room that needs to be confronted as a root cause for load shedding is that I believe that I think there are solutions and some of them we've discussed them at different forums, uh, for instance, uh, to try and resolve this. And we've been also talking to government, some of the, you know, the cases, and we hope that some of these discussions will be taken forward as I think at the right platform. But indeed, it's just the biggest I think, element and the root cause that needs to be resolved for us to be able to deal with it. And then the, the last element, uh, Nicolette, that I think, you know, needs to be addressed. I think the president touched on this uh, around, you know, bringing in skills and, and so forth yeah, in terms of the skills gap and the shortages. However, I just want to amplify it and say, you know, maybe we need to have a long-term view around this and I'll justify why I think we need to have a long view. If you look at ESCOM, ESCOM is a company that needs it's people to think, you know, in, in 40 to 50 year cycles, because ESCOM um, plants last for this period and is paid off during this particular period. And we expect it to operate efficiently during this particular period. So I'll make an example. If you look at your 
your, your, your smartphone type of businesses. The cycle there is about two to three years. So therefore you can have that site, you know, in terms of the view or the thinking around that. But equally so with ESCOM is 40 to 50 years. So therefore it becomes important. And then ESCOM assets have a 50 year life cycle and all resources around the life cycle of the, the ESCOM plant should ideally be then for that life cycle. So although it's, it's, it's ideal, but I think you should strive towards that where there's that longevity, and obviously there's a skill base, I think around that to look into uh, making sure that uh, there's proper succession that happens and obviously transfer of knowledge so that the plant knowledge and the DNA can then be understood for that period. So the skills resources need to be then incentivized to stay and not to go as their skills are directly related to the core business of ESCOM. But I must say that instead of that, I think I've seen in the last five years or so, so ESCOM is actually more threatening their people, clearly stating that they are overstaffed and they need to get rid of the people and so forth. I think it's been out there in the media. So where I'm sitting, I think the morale is that it's all time low. And, and that obviously contributes towards uh, making sure that you know, the performance issues and the honesty around the employees are actually delivered. So, so they are, uh, currently they've been incentivized to leave. That's what has been happening, I think, you know, give or take. And the aging plant that actually needs these people now more than ever are left with an experienced staff. So I think that's really the context. So today, with this image, the plan, say crisis, ESCOM is now trying to bring back the skills uh, you know, in a hurry that is maybe paid to chase away in some of the cases. And, and, and I think it's very important to make this note. So ESCOM is a monopoly. So it needs to create its own skills that it needs because you're not gonna go down the road and actually get it. <laughs> So, so therefore it's important that there should be a strong retention strategy, I think, around that, so that it, it deals with the issue of skills, not in a haphazard manner, but in a long-term strategy, uh, so that uh, it's it's more sustainable and it actually talks to the well understanding, I think, of the plant. So, so that becomes important. So now, if you look at your engineers, your plant managers, you know, your 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 generation staff and so forth. I think that that has to be the plan from the long-term point of view. And let's not have a niche reaction, but have a long-term view, I think, around it. Now I'll turn into management and probably the board composition, because it's also important that there's that understanding, I think, at that particular level. So so there's there's been, I think, of years. I'm also from ESCOM, you know, I'm a product of ESCOM from training and then you know working within the ESCOM distribution until say whatever 2002 from 1994 somewhere there so but there's been this unsaid ESCOM philosophy uh, uh, that has been there I think over time I think firstly I think maybe because of how ESCOM was run so it was basically not to allow people into the engine room of ESCOM make sure that it remains technical you get things done uh, but again there was no need for government to go into the engine room because of its performance so I think that's the first thing but also if you look at how things were operating, so the chairman and the CEO of ESCOM always got, came from within ESCOM with a minimum of 25 to 35 years experience, either in generation, transmission, or even distribution, or the combination of the two. So I've been asking myself why. So I think it's because during that 30-year ten, they got to know all the managers, at least not all, but at least how you know, the system operated, understood the skill sets that were there and who will fit best where, you know, where, and then the strengths as well and weaknesses 
of the organization because you're actually within the system. So for me, this is priceless and, and it's very crucial to the running of, you know, of a proper ESCOM engineering company. I'll make an example with myself. I mean, I've been the CEO of City Power, but I actually grew through the ranks. You know, uh, I actually spent about uh, 10 years or so before I became the CEO of uh, the CEO of City Power, as an example. But then that helps you with the understanding of the business, the people, etc. And the quick turnaround as well when you start implementing certain strategies around you know management and 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 and, and the turnaround within the organization. So, but let's now look at what has happened. How many times has the CEOs been sourced outside from ESCOM and actually changed in the last 10 years? So if you look at it, there's been about what? Five outside CEOs in eight years, in the past eight years, versus three internal CEO over the 22 period, about 1990 to 2012. And I think I'll argue that those were the ESCOM best years. So, and again, I think the other point I would like to make, uh, also, I think the chairman of ESCOM was almost always the previous CEO of the company. I think this ensured some level of continuity and retention, but also the knowledge and the industry, I think, respects, I think, around that. So all I'm saying is, from the succession planning point of view, I think it's a strategy that we need to start rethinking, see whether it works or not, but be able to create a long-term view. And this is informed by the nature of the business, as I said, when I, I started. So if you're running a, a smartphone industry, other manufacturing and so forth, and, uh, it, there's a two to three aside, but ESCOM is a 40 to 50 year. So therefore we need to align the strategy I think, around that. So I'm saying the issue of skills, the issue of succession planning has to be, you know, implemented as such, uh, aligned to uh, the fleet that and the nature of the business that we're actually trying to, you know, to manage. Uh, and that's basically what I'm saying. Uh, and I think some of the points that I would like to put across there, it's obviously maybe uh, from the board perspective, you know, uh, so in terms of, you know, considerations that we go for, probably uh, look at making sure that uh, the board composition, uh, because ESCOM is a monopoly and, uh, and the, and the seats maybe should then be considered or given to some of the representatives of ESCOM large power users or groupings. Uh, it can be from the mining sector, industrial, you know, agriculture, municipality must be represented. So this somehow must be in case with, within law. So there must be those seats that are allocated because then those people, they understand and their respective sort of like businesses are driving the economy of the country. So therefore they want ESCOM to be able to succeed. And obviously there will be government representatives, I think around that in terms of those seats, but the composition uh, I think has to be thought through as well uh, and be encased I think within law somehow. So that there's that legitimacy, but also there's consideration around ESCOM being the key factor in terms of driving the economy. So, so I think that's important, but also it might minimize the risk of state capture and geopolitical influence, et cetera, because there's a common goal around driving the success, I think, of ESCOM. And therefore we can then say ESCOM can probably return to its profitability and it can be a pillar of the economy uh, and, and therefore uh, making sure that there's investment I've been coming to the country. But without really ESCOM, uh, I don't think we, you know, we'll be able to drive the economy of this country because therefore there's going to be no development uh, that obviously will then come through. And again, we need that particular base load, I think, from ESCOM. So as I conclude, uh, I, I, I think it's, it's important that uh, the renewable energy drive is driven with a context of energy mix in line with the RP and not as a, a solution or, or, you know, to, to load shedding. So I think that's, that, that's important.
So there's a role for it, but we need to get it to the right particular mix. It has to operate within the other technologies uh, at the end of the day. And, and as I've said, I think ESCOM debt is the biggest contributor to load shedding. It has to be confronted and resolved because without it, all the other good plans that are put in place, if they are not funded, uh, won't be able to obviously you know, try and resolve the, you know, the, the symptom, which is then a lot shady. We think that that is a root cause. And again, I think the skills gap or skills shortage must be addressed, including the board composition and the succession planning, as I've argued, I think, uh, previously. And I think, yes, the 6,000 megawatts has to be unlocked um, uh, through maintenance as soon as possible. And again, I think the consideration around the, the, the power imports uh, when it comes to you know the Southern African power pool, I think that also needs to be uh, explored and obviously be uh, considered as, as well uh, as part of the solution. So Nicolette, I think these are really you know uh, my input. And again, I would like to really stress the point that uh, if we look at uh, load shedding, it is the symptom, and we need to start confronting these root causes uh, so that we once and for all uh, address the issue of, of load shedding. Uh, and obviously it's not gonna be an easy journey. It, I think it needs uh, uh, that political will, but also, which I think is there, but also it needs, uh, I think for all of us uh, to be able to then come together uh, and be able to actually drive one objective of making sure that we get the ESCOM right for the economy of this country uh, to get back on its uh, you know, feet uh, uh, again. So I think that, that's really my input uh, into this, Nicolette. And again, thank you for the opportunity. Oh, thank you so much, Isello. You have given us uh, a very wide uh, view on the situation as it stands and what the potential uh, opportunities there are and what we could look forward to as the energy plan progresses. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. Thank you very much. Thanks for the question again. You have been listening to an ESI Africa podcast. For the latest news, reports, and interviews on power, energy, and related industries, visit the ESI Africa website on esi-africa.com or follow us on social media. Until next time, thank you for tuning in.